is the word of God. The morning, the conqueror returned. Uh, enthroned aloft an open-top bus, uh, three gold medals hanging from his neck. Uh, Chris Hoy, the Olympic-winning cyclist, brought Edinburgh's Royal Mile to a standstill. And although the uh, 50,000-strong crowd, many of them, uh, only knew Hoy from the proximity of their TV screens, what everyone also knew was that Hoy had succeeded. Uh, Chris Hoy had fulfilled his goal of becoming the greatest Scottish Olympian ever. For Hoy, it was mission accomplished. Uh, However, uh, did you know that it all could have been a different story? Uh, Did you know that only days before his opening ride in the Games, Hoy was launched from his bike, he was thrown off, in a 50-plus mile per hour accident. He later uh, wryly admitted that this could have thwarted his chances, it could have ruined his games. Instead, it was just a few bad burns and splinters. See, many fail to realize what a fine line there is between triumph and disaster. And I suppose in Edinburgh City Centre on Tuesday, uh, many fail to realize how easily mission accomplished could have become mission failure. Now this fine line between triumph and disaster is something that we see today as we continue our studies in Acts. Because in this passage, we encounter two returning heroes. uh, Two men who had also set out overseas on a long journey. uh, Two individuals who had set out with an aim not to win Uh, gold medals in the Olympics, but with a much higher goal to win converts for the Lord Jesus Christ whom they loved. And these men had been evidently successful in their task. Having traveled abroad much of the then known world, they had established churches practically wherever they went. And now, uh, some think as long as two years later, They are returning home to the the home city, the home base in Antioch. To all intents and purposes, successful missionaries, victorious pioneers, conquering heroes. But what many fail to realize is just what a fine line there was between triumph and disaster. How close Paul and Barnabas came to failure, particularly in the last few months of their trip, when every conceivable problem seemed to be thrown at them. But they survived by God's grace, and this is the record of how they returned home with their mission accomplished. So, let's look at this together, and let's consider especially the challenges they encountered and negotiated successfully. Let me propose to you that there are three main threats, three main threats to mission accomplished that they overcome. Number one, the allure of adulation. The allure of adulation. The first threat Paul and Barnabas had to avoid was the spotlight. Or to change the metaphor, they had to disentangle themselves from the web of popularity. Now, this is something I, I suspect that we don't often consider to be a threat, to be an issue. 
At least when people are throwing rocks at you, you know you're being attacked. But this is much more subtle than that. And Paul and Barnabas had to be on their guard against this sweet smelling praise that was rising up to their nostrils as people put them up high on a pedestal. Now, as we retrace the passage, you'll see why these two men were popular at least some of the time. I mean, for one thing, there was the multiple conversions. Almost everywhere Paul and Barnabas visit, people become Christians. Wherever they preach, uh, people seem to, to jump off the sinking ship of paganism and jump aboard the lifeboat of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are effective evangelists. And, and we know even today, don't we, uh, that fruitful evangelists are fairly popular people, especially among Christians. It's no accident, I don't think, that probably the most popular Christian alive is Billy Graham, and that Billy Graham is a fruitful Evangelists. I think those go somewhat together. Paul and Barnabas were fruitful evangelists. And along with this success, they also performed spectacular miracles, even better than Billy Graham. In Iconium, verse 3, and in Lystra, they performed these signs. And in Lystra, we're given detail of one particular miracle they performed. The Apostle Paul meets a cripple who has been lamed, lame from birth, and he heals this man according to his faith. Now note this, the result of the miracle should have been the crowd clamoring to hear Paul's message. Verse 3 tells us that, that the purpose of miracle signs was not to entertain the crowd, but to point them to the gospel, to confirm the message. Unfortunately though, the crowd in Lystra uh, don't follow this pattern. In fact, that's a bit of an understatement. They do something completely bizarre. Because rather than worshipping the one true God, the living God, as they see this miracle, instead, they turn to Paul and Barnabas, and they're so impressed with them, they set them up as gods. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, notice the emphasis, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. It's really remarkable. Barnabas, they dubbed Zeus, who was the greatest of the gods, and Paul they call Hermes, who was the messenger, the psychic of Zeus, who brought his proclamations, probably because Paul was the one preaching. And in demonstration of their devotion to these newly crowned deities, they, uh, they wheel out the locals, the, the priest of Zeus, and then the priest of Zeus in turn quickly wheels out a sacrifice, a bull, uh, to perform worship. Now, what's interesting is Paul and Barnabas, they don't speak the local tribe language of the Lyconians. So they don't know what's going on until this, suddenly this bull and these wreaths are, are sort of coming towards them and getting set up before them and then they twig. They are about to be worshipped. And you can just imagine the conversation, you know, between Barnabas and, 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 and Paul. Uh, as Barnabas uh, says, you know, should I call you Hermes? You want to call me Zeus? You know, who's going to step forward and take the worship first? Now, actually, when you stop to think about it, this isn't quite so bizarre. 
It's not actually so left field. Because actually this elevating tendency is part of human nature. We're designed to worship something. And very often that something becomes a human someone. And you know, even as Christians, we can fall imperceptibly into this kind of thing. Appreciation for another Christian can veer across lanes into adulation. Respect, which is altogether appropriate for those who we love in the Lord, can become reverence and dependency. When I was about uh, 16 years old, I just recommitted my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the time, there was a pastor who was a real encouragement to me in my faith. And I think on reflection, looking back, there was a little bit of pastor worship going on. You know, I really thought this man could do no wrong and that everything he said must be right. I didn't even need to check up on it. And don't get me wrong, I knew uh, that he wasn't the, you know, part of the Trinity. But he was a close fourth. (laughs) And one day I was waxing lyrical about this man to another mature Christian who wasn't in my church, didn't really know this pastor, and I'll never forget what what he said to me. It kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, Colin... However good this pastor friend of yours is, his feet are made of clay. Respect is one thing. Reverence is another. And yet here is this crowd and they've crossed the line from respect to reverence. And what do you do? I mean, what do you do when you're on the receiving end of this kind of thing? Maybe not quite so overt. But when the temptation comes for you to take value from other people appreciating you and your ministry to them. You know, maybe you've led someone to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're a very special individual in their life. Maybe you've discipled and nurtured them in the very early stages. And they seem to come to you for every bit of advice that they need. And you notice perhaps that there's a dependency not on God but on you. Here's what Paul and Barnabas did. They rebutted the adoration. They simply refuted it out of hand. First of all, with a reminder of who they are. This is what you need to do. You need to constantly remind uh, that person that your feet are made of clay. Paul says, we're only human messengers. You can almost hear the exasperation in Paul's voice. Verse 15, we too are only men, human like you. And then he visually demonstrates his anguish by tearing his clothes, verse 14, which a Jew did whenever they heard blasphemy. And Paul and Barnabas had just heard blasphemy. The crowd had said that they were gods when they were nothing of the sort. No, says Paul, if we do have any status at all, It relates only to the glorious task that we are called to perform. Verse 15, we are bringing you the good news. We're not God, says Paul, but we are bringing you a message from God. We're just God's postman. That's what we are, he says. So now that that's clarified, why don't we tell you who this God is? From a reminder of who they are to a reminder of who God is. So that they won't be mistaken identity. He's the living creator, verse 15, of the heavens and the earth. 
He is the kind sustainer who has shown his goodness by sending uh, rain and crops even to heathen nations like you. And he is the unrivaled sovereign who commands nations to turn from their worthless idols, which are just dead things, unlike the living God. And so by way of this twofold rebuttal, Paul and Barnabas refute the reverence and they parry this very real danger of adulation. Now, as Paul and Barnabas continue, notice with me there is a second threat that comes their way. The peril of persecution. And this is really just extremes, isn't it? This brings us to the opposite end of the spectrum. Indeed, for Paul and Barnabas, adulation came on the same day as persecution. A little bit like the Scottish weather over this summer, you know. Even when the sun shines, it rains too. Adulation and persecution. And this persecution, to begin with, is directed straight to the apostles, to the apostles specifically. Maybe especially to Paul. Now notice the intensifying ferocity of this. It begins, it starts with crowd trouble in verses 2 and 19. As in Iconium and in Lystra, the unbelieving opponents to Paul and Barnabas attempt to turn the crowd against them. Just imagine it. You're preaching your heart out. You're preaching for converts to Jesus Christ. And while you are in the act of preaching, it's like someone would be here this morning and going around the seats and sitting down next to individuals and whispering in their ear. That's a load of nonsense. These guys can't be trusted. Their message is false. However, this rabble-rousing leads directly to a second threat, a death threat. In Iconium, these aforementioned opponents so poisoned the minds of some in the crowd that we're told the populace was divided. Some in the crowd side with the Jewish opposition and others side with the apostles. The city was schismed. But this opposition group, uh, this unholy partnership of both Jews and Gentiles, it wasn't just the Jews who persecuted in Acts, together they next plot to kill the apostles. Let's just get rid of them altogether. By some means we learn that Paul and Barnabas get wind of this, and I think with some wisdom they hightail it out of Iconium. Pastor R. Kent Hughes comments, Paul and Barnabas were brave, but not foolish. They were born again, but not born yesterday. So they flee to Lystra. And yet even there, the persecution follows them down the road into Lystra. The rabble-rousers return, and indeed they are so intent on getting these apostles that some of them come over a hundred miles all the way from Pisidian Antioch as well as from Iconium, to target these apostles. And next, the death threat steps up a level, and it becomes attempted murder. How ironic that the man who years before, when we first met him in Acts, the man who years before had been complicit in the stoning of Stephen, now experiences stoning for himself. And the rocks crash against his skull. 
We read in verse 19, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. No wonder Paul could later say in the book of Galatians, May no one do me any harm, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had scars because of his ministry. And of course, these scars were part of what made the man. These persecutions, particularly at this stage in Paul's life, were part of what shaped him into what he became one of the most eminent Christians ever. Came across a, a poem a couple of weeks ago, and as I was preparing this part of the passage, it reminded me of this. This poem could have been written about Paul. Listen to this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, Watch his method. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him. And with mighty blows converts him into shapes and forms of clay which only God can understand. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, yet God bends but never breaks when man's good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses, and with mighty power infuses him, with every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God knew what he was about, even when he permitted the stoning of Paul. And oh, the crowd thought that Paul was dead, that was certainly their intention, but they were wrong. And when the baying crowds finally clear, The disciples in that city, some who probably had recently just been converted, they gathered around the Apostle Paul, probably thinking they're about to bury him. And then somebody says, hey, there's a pulse here. And Paul slowly comes to. And what is amazing is, the battered and bruised Apostle gets up, and and what does he do? He walks straight back into the city. He doesn't run this time. It's a bit of a a conundrum that. Uh, Maybe it was because Paul realized that God had spared him and he thought, well, if God has spared me, then it's not my time and I need not be afraid. He goes back in to town. Even more notable, though, I think, is that Paul didn't quit the ministry even at the threat of murder and death. Paul didn't quit because of a few rocks thrown at him. He didn't go home to Tarsus. He didn't leave like John Mark had done even before the persecution hotted up. The very next day, we read, he left for another city to preach Christ. And he traveled the 60 miles to Derby by foot, probably with an aching body. And he preached to Christ there and many were saved. A large number were told in Derby. See, Paul understood that suffering was just part and parcel of his remit. The Lord had promised this to Paul, even at his conversion in Acts chapter 9. It was part of his job description. But you know, I want to tell you something this morning, from this passage, 
and the testimony it gives, it is also part of our job description as the church of Jesus Christ. Every single Christian. Not just something directed towards apostles specifically, but also towards Christians generally. Persecution comes, folks. Did you notice uh, later in the passage, Paul is exhorting an ordinary church group, a, a group of believers just like this this morning in Acts 14.22, and Paul explains to them that persecution is par for the course. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The we includes every Christian. It includes even us. Now, I know people sometimes say, well, we face in the modern West less persecution than in other parts of the world. And that's certainly true. We certainly don't tend to face this kind of thing. But I think something that is also probably true is that the place where we are most likely to experience persecution is in evangelism. It was the same for Paul and Barnabas. You know, if they just strolled into town and got to know the locals, it wouldn't have been a problem. It was when they opened their mouths and they proclaimed Jesus that the rocks started flying. Remember the first book I think I read on evangelism was by a guy called Nick Pollard. And uh, I can't really remember much about the content of the book, just really the front cover. The book's called Evangelism Made Slightly Less Difficult. And you maybe can see the cover there, but it's, it's a, a group of five men in chemical suits, right? Fully covered, going into a toxic environment. And you see, I think that betrays something of what we really think about evangelism. It's not so much that speaking about Jesus is hard or that we don't know our faith well enough to share it. The real issue is the fact that we know it's the place we're going to face suffering. It it can be a toxic environment. Evangelism is the place where we're going to meet the cold shoulders and the looks of contempt and even perhaps hostility outright. As long as we leave people alone, they'll largely leave us alone. That's been my experience. But Paul and Barnabas opened their mouths and they were persecuted for their faith and they patiently endured it. And if they did not patiently endure it, quite simply, some people wouldn't have been saved. The town of Derby wouldn't have been evangelized. It's either a little suffering for us or it's eternal suffering for those we don't take the gospel to. What a challenge this was. However, there was one final threat That remained, and this really could have derailed and unraveled the whole thing. The challenge of consolidation, thirdly. See, it might have been tempting, after all of this evangelism, uh, merely to pack up and head directly home. After all, Paul and Barnabas must have been absolutely exhausted, traveling uh, for two whole years, preaching Christ. But surprisingly, they don't travel back to Antioch and Syria, their home base, by the most direct route. That would have been to go east by land uh, through Tarsus. It would have been an awful lot quicker. Instead, they decide to retrace their steps and go through all the same towns that they have just evangelized. They go back to Iconium. They go back to Lystra. They go back to Derbe. And remember, these are places where they face severe persecution. So it was dangerous. 
But the reason they do so is that they evidently had something important to do, namely the consolidation of new Christians. First of all, they strengthen these new believers by teaching them, we're told. There's a good way to strengthen new Christians. Teach them. Exhort them, verse 22, to remain true to the faith. Now, the faith here is not so much their personal faith, their their personal belief in Jesus. It sort of has a technical meaning, the faith. Uh, We might say the beliefs, like our core doctrinal statement. Paul and Barnabas uh, taught them about the core body of teachings, the, the central beliefs that make up the gospel, the faith. They probably gave seminars and had discussions uh, about such doctrines as one creator God and the fact of human sinfulness and the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sinners on the cross to avert God's wrath. And they probably talked about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and then discussed uh, faith and repentance, which are part and parcel of us accepting all that God has done for us in Christ. This is the faith that they taught them about. And Paul and Barnabas were saying to these new believers, whatever you do, don't lose sight of this gospel. Keep a grip on this definitive group of core teachings. There is nothing more important for a new Christian to learn even today. You know, they can get the rest of Grudem's systematic theology over however long they're a Christian. But what they need to have a handle on and what every Christian needs to keep their grip on is the gospel. This is what must be absolutely clear throughout all the ministries of Charlotte Chapel. The gospel is the one non-negotiable. It's the one thing that must be absolutely clear. We may disagree with each other on a whole number of matters, a whole number of circumference issues. But we may not disagree with what lies at the core if we would be a Christian church. So Paul reminds them of these truths, and he builds up these new believers with the gospel. And then not only does he do this in teaching, but he organizes them as well. There's teaching and there's organizing. They appoint elders in every town they visit. Verse 23. Now evidently they hadn't had time to do this when they were there the first time. And now recognizing that they will soon be gone. That Paul and Barnabas simply won't be around. They put a structure in place for the preservation of these believers. A structure that is conducive to the ongoing protection and proclamation of the gospel. And this structure they established is what we find across the New Testament is called eldership. Elders who are chiefly appointed not to guard the interests of an organization or or a building, but primarily to guard the gospel, to establish that gospel in the hearts of every Christian, and to protect the flock from any who would come in teaching a false gospel. That's what eldership is about. Paul, significantly, and always in the New Testament, appoints a plurality of elders. Not just one, but but a group of men. And interestingly, probably he appoints elders who were not mature Christians, maybe in the standards that we would 
line them up against. Because these churches could only have been, let's say, a year old at this time. So Paul picks the most mature of what he has. These elders were not long in the tooth. And this is a reminder, perhaps, that while uh, we shouldn't thrust new converts into eldership, Paul calls that laying on hands too hastily. Maybe on the other hand, uh, we can be overcautious. As if someone has to be a Christian, you know, for 30, 40 plus years before consideration. That's not the case. Well, Paul strengthens these churches by teaching and by organizing and by appointing elders. And they they therefore uh, move on from these places and he returns to Perga. You remember they pass through there. This time they preach there. And then they turn southeast to the port of Atalaya. And from there, they finally sail home to the city of Antioch in Syria. And there follows the consolidation of the home base, you know, like any good missionary needs to do. Uh, They gather the church uh, together, and they have what was perhaps the first missionary conference in history. They report all that God has done, and then they have a much-deserved furlough. No doubt both to recharge their batteries... And strengthen relationships in the home base because guess what? Paul's going to launch out on a second missionary journey. You just watch this space. Well, this is a little challenge uh, for us. How wise Paul and Barnabas were, how well they did not to fall at this hurdle, how they recognized the importance of not just evangelism alone, but evangelism with follow-up and discipleship and teaching, and strengthening, and good church structures around new Christians. A little challenge just for us to ponder this morning. I wonder, are we providing adequate, consolidating ministry for new Christians? Or are we letting some of them sort of fall through the cracks? This is a very important threat that must be faced. So Paul and Barnabas negotiated the challenge of consolidation, the peril of persecution, as well as the allure of adulation. And therefore, having overcome these hurdles, it was a case of mission accomplished, not mission failed. At the beginning of this sermon, I mentioned Chris Hoy and how in his ministry, uh, his uh, opportunity, he was successful. You know, I learned this week, and this is perhaps unsurprisingly from someone of his abilities and motivation, that Hoy is already looking forward to the next Olympic Games. Four years down the line, London 2012. He says, I want to win gold medals there. One thing that Hoy realizes is that defeat or victory requires him to be competing in the Games. I mean, Hoy won this time. Maybe next time he won't be successful. Who knows? But he realizes that to win or to lose, he's got to be in the games, and he's planning to be in them. It strikes me that evangelism, too, is not a spectator sport. We've been looking at evangelism over a couple of weeks. We've been, in a sense, admiring uh, from the stands Paul and Barnabas and all that they did and all that they achieved. But what a shame it would be if we thought that evangelism was just a spectator sport. You know, you can't fall over the hurdles if you're not even in the race. It would be even better, actually, to fail in attempting to evangelize your non-Christian friends than simply not to evangelize them. 
The words of Winston Churchill, in a very different context, may be particularly apt to conclude this morning. They're very famous, but listen to what he once said. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those whose cold and timid souls know neither victory or defeat. Let's pray together.